0: This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kant. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch-up and then two main items of news, usually picked by myself and Eugene.
1: Good afternoon, Sharice. What's going on?
0: Um, it's actually still technically morning. When do you start saying good afternoon to people?
1: I don't know, after 12? Sounds about right.
0: Yeah, so it's 11 a.m. in London right now. So you can still say good
1: morning. We got plan for the weekend. This is our second weekend in a row we're recording on a Saturday.
0: Yeah, I mean, actually the weekend I feel I've just been taking more chill. I haven't really... I've, I've been doing lots Monday to Friday and actually Saturday and Sunday we've been like just staying at home. Yeah.
1: So tell me, how was your first week of school? And for those that are unfamiliar, first time tuning in, where are you and what are you doing?
0: I'm in London and I'm starting a master's program in design and I'm getting my notebook out. You can't see it, but I'm getting my notebook out because I took notes because there was this welcome lecture, which is like definitely a lot of things to think about. And that's, this is what I told you previously as well. Like this week has been a lot of new information and not necessarily new in the sense that it's like, I've never heard these things before and that like these ideas are so revolutionary, but new to me and new to my routine because it's it's such a different environment, right? Like I've been working, I've been in Hong Kong, I've been hanging out with the same people and now every interaction I have is something that I don't have the basis for yet. Like maybe it's a thing that I will be able to understand, but at the moment that it occurs, I don't know what to expect.
1: Yeah. Was anything surprising?
0: I don't know about surprising, but I think I'm not, because I'm not sure what I really expected because I did kind of go in with maybe not very concrete expectations in terms of like what my school is like or my student population might be like, but I do think... The school is a little bit smaller and more liberal and maybe not the same mix of people that I expected. And I'm not saying any of these things in a negative way, just like that um, the reality of what I'm seeing is maybe slightly different from what I expected. Or at least like it's very different. Like I did my undergrad at Parsons and it's very different from Parsons. Um, but I, I knew that. In what way? Well, one is that Goldsmiths is not a public school, but it's more of like a public school feeling. Um, like the person I'm living with, she actually called it the People's College, like, like as in a colloquial way of referring to it. So it's not maybe as elitist or bougie as Parsons and other art schools which I think is a good thing, or at least is a different thing. Is different from what I've...
1: What you've just mentioned there, can you give me, and this is me sort of setting you up, but if you look at a school like Parsons and you've also gone to Parsons, what do you think is like a stereotypical POV on Parsons?
0: Someone who's really well off and doesn't maybe doesn't need to support themselves, like is supported by their family.
1: But is the school itself good? Which that's actually, I was kind of like trying to come. No, no, I was actually trying to get both out of you. Kind of like the personality and the outcome.
0: Well, I think, no, the school is good. The school in terms of like professors and the program is great in my opinion at Parsons. And I, I my feeling so far at Goldsmiths is positive in terms of programming and the professors, but it is so much of art school. I mean, I don't know about other degrees or majors because I don't have experience, but so much of art school is about like the people that you spend time with. Um, You are influenced a lot by your classmates because you do spend a lot of time in studios where you're maybe like 18 to 20 people. Um, and that's like not really within, I mean, I guess it is within the school's control in terms of admissions, but so much of admissions I feel like is based off of portfolio and not necessarily personality. But then when you're in, when you're a student in those programs, it winds up being a lot Mm -hmm. about personality as opposed to portfolio. Got it.
1: So there's a switch into what is the most valuable thing you'd say.
0: What was the most valuable to you as a classmate, right? Because like, obviously it's great. That your cohort produces good work, but it's also really important when you're hanging out with them that they're not assholes. So oh, I got you. also just a, like flipping my brain, I feel like like a, like a switch in my brain to go from work to student. I think the responsibilities are very different, like responsibilities to myself and to what I've like committed myself to doing. And I was kind of thinking about it in the context of like for work. I'm paid to do a certain, you know, number of things, whether it's freelance or with Macon or whatever it is. Like I receive compensation for the work that I do. And then school is actually a little bit of the inverse because I'm paying for myself to learn. I don't receive the compensation I receive is not monetary.
1: You and I had a discussion yesterday where I was like, just called you up, and we just had a very sort of casual conversation about the the role and the expectation. Under the pretense of this new working environment. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it. And I, what I think is interesting. And it was kind of a nice, I would say over the course of our working relationship anyways. And also my, even my, my professional, so quote unquote management experience, there's, you're always chunking off certain times of people right like for example if you're working full time you expect to have them for 8 or 9 hours of the day or whatever it is right and likewise if someone is working with you in a quasi freelance capacity same thing and it was kind of the first time that we had to readjust the working relationship and kind of come to terms with what was the expectation in the past might need to be revisited i don't i think that what i just mentioned there sounds a little bit boring and dry but i think it's really fascinating because it's sort of understanding the continual shift of someone in their career and at any given moment in time and time being the most important sort of determinant of how you approach something. There was a certain expectation for you when you were in office in Hong Kong. And while we wanted to carry that over into your time in London, it's like, it kind of has to change, right? There's going to be certain things that take precedence and take priority. And I've always said this too. It's like, you know, working is going to be something that's always going to be there for the majority of people. And there's certain things that you need to do in the moment.
0: Well, I think it's, I don't, mm, I think it's new for both of us, right? Because I'm, even though I did work while I was doing my undergrad, it wasn't to the same degree. And it wasn't like as a professional, really. It was internships and part-time jobs. And so this is new for me as well, doing education while also trying to maintain professional work. And I I have new respect for workplaces that really like support their employees through doing whatever additional learning or education programs, because I know some companies offer that, right? And it is definitely tricky because I think there is a common understanding between you and me or other like employer-employee relationships where education is important. Like it's valuable in a way... That is different from like, let's say I was trying to do a second part-time job. You know what I mean? It's not competing in the same way. If I was doing making and other freelance work, it's more clear like what the relationship is. But with education, it feels like there are more compromises that I I need to ask for. And I also need to like be more communicative about my shifting situation, like my shifting workload and school environment.
1: I look at education in the context of this currently as it pertains to like the push-pull with work in that I think education is arguably more important than work. I mean, there's different types of education. There's institutionalized education, kind of what you're going through right now to get a piece of paper. (laughs) It's funny. I'm reducing it to a piece Mm -hmm. of paper, but there's that. And there's also just like...
0: I've, I've used the same language.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the long... The long-standing approach to also just learning, being a lifelong learner, right? And maybe it's because my parents instilled education yeah. into me as something that was very important. I mean, we're, we're Asian, no same. There's nothing else you can really work around, right? But I think in,
0: <laughs> in case anyone, I mean, people might not know,
1: just listening to our voices, yeah. If there's a choice between education and anything else, it's almost as though education is always the precedence. So if someone's like, oh, I need to take three weeks off to go study for an exam, like you don't really have the ability to say no. I mean, you probably want to try to work it out and find some sort of compromise, but like it is really a very important part of someone's personal development.
0: I think you and Megan supporting me while I do my master's is also an interesting experiment or an interesting challenge for you on your end in terms of a business person and a manager. Because if we can do this, if we can have a relationship through this that is successful, I think it's better for you and your business. Like moving forwards, if you have the ability to support someone in both work as they are learning in whatever capacity.
1: My question to you is how do you think you'll be better at your job while you go through school?
0: I mean, I think the thing about I, I hope that actually this is really related to my topic this week is that I hope I will have new ways of seeing things. And I, I don't know, I don't know if that's like too lofty of a goal. Like I say it and already feel like I don't know if it's attainable, but I I would like this experience to create new ways for me to question things and consider different ways of executing whatever it is that I want to do.
1: Did you have anything? Should we talk about this week's stories?
0: Yeah, you go for it. You, you would be more familiar.
1: Sure. First story we did was on Capo. So it's a sculpture by artist Jun Cha, someone that we know really well. Uh, For those unfamiliar, he's a, artist, but also probably more famously known as a tattoo artist based in Los Angeles. And June and I guess the Macon family have come to be quite close friends. And I often think like, why why do certain people gravitate towards one another? And the one thing I kind of recognize is that June has his sort of social media facade. And I'm sure he's probably 100% aware of this, but the social media facade that he puts up is super serious uh always black and white for the most part like a very just serious approach to the aesthetical side of everything he does and he also talks about very deep thematic things but when you meet him in person it's not that that stuff is is the only thing he cares about he cares about finding a way to make it approachable like he he'll joke around he's like not super serious as a person so that's like a very interesting sort of um contrast in his personality i think that's kind of why we get along because like we control each other we can joke around and shit and then when it comes to talking about like interesting things that sort of permeate our everyday lives that we feel have a bigger impact in some capacity and it sounds kind of pretentious talking about it like that but i mean i can go into a conversation with them and just kind of find a lot of interesting touch points but anyways his sculpture in itself is interesting because it it's something that he wanted to create as a way to signify our time on this planet and the relationship that death and life play within mother yeah. nature it's and he did a really cool video around that he's been working on it for a while it's
0: pretty classic of a memento mori art like it's very apparent i yeah. um, not to not, not a knock on it at all i'm just mean it's um, it falls within that category.
1: I didn't even know that was a category. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
0: I don't know. I don't know. It goes quite far back. A lot of um, even fine paintings in the past were categorized as such. Like still lifes could be memento mori as well when they were depicting...
1: Memento mori being like referential to referential
0: death. Referential to death, rem- reminding people that yeah. you know death is eventual. So as I was saying, even still lifes of decaying fruit or the corpse of a bird or something like that was intended to be along those
1: lines. Interesting. I wasn't super familiar about that. That was one story that we did and just talked to him about, you know, his kind of why he decided to do this and and how he approached it and I think for a lot of tattoo artists that are really successful, they often are not satisfied with just being a tattoo artist and they want to seek something else. And I don't know if it's because They're seeking a different form of validation from a different set Mm. of art critics.
0: Actually, what I was thinking is being a tattoo artist, your art becomes part of someone else. And it's hard to imagine your art as a standalone thing because it's it's part of someone else's body.
1: That's pretty interesting. I never thought of it that way.
0: It becomes, this is now part of Eugene and... Even though I, I created this, it's hard to say, oh, this is my artwork. I, I'm, I'm not a tattoo mm-hmm. artist, but just theorizing about that sensation. Yeah. Whereas like when Jun Cha makes mm-hmm. Capo, this sculpture, it, it's very much all him. And it's this thing that I've put out into the world and is solely, it is what I want it to be or what what I want it to say.
1: Yeah. And then another story we put out was... We
0: did John CJ and Julie Zerbo.
1: yeah. Julie Zerbo, like that was a story that actually was really fascinating to me because Julie Zerbo is somebody I, I've respected for as long as I've known the fashion law and it hasn't been that long, maybe like two years, under two years. But it also stems from something that I'm close to and that's like fashion media, right? The one thing that has really sort of resonated with me with her is just like her truthfulness around both the topic at hand and how she wants to do it, do it being... Fashion media, right? And I there's... think
0: also she's, she and the fashion law are very interested in providing factual context to things that are happening. And I think yeah. we read, we personally read the fashion law a lot to just un- make sense of things that are maybe from the surface quite complicated. And she breaks it down really yeah. well.
1: And the one thing that I think is really important for people to not confuse is that when you're critical of something, it often isn't done in a way that's hateful. It's more that I want better, which yeah. is why I'm trying to raise the yeah. bar. And I think there's there's a lot of things that kind of get confused there that people need to kind of understand. Like, if someone's being critical or critiquing, it's not because they're a hater, necessarily. And I kind of feel the same way in someone's discussions I have, we have, where, for example, I'll be talking to somebody and you know, everyone gets really sensitive when you in an open context are kind of having a go at somebody. And I was thinking about this actually, if our primary way of communicating with people is through something you post on social media, I think that the way that it's done, it's not the best way to kind of communicate critique, right? Because like if you're scrolling through somebody's posts on social media and all of a sudden somebody's critiquing you openly, I think it looks very aggressive. And I don't know If that's the reason why, because arguably you could have that same conversation in person or in a private email, it would be perceived differently, right? So maybe it's just the way we've communicated with each other. I think
0: the way we communicate on social media in those kinds of critiques is necessarily more aggressive because you make those comments with the audience in mind. So it's not the same as sending an email and providing your feedback on something. You are in a way performing your critique um, and that's going to add a different layer to what you're saying.
1: Yeah. It's actually pretty interesting, a good way of looking at it because like the audience and who's privy to the knowledge.
0: With the fashion law, it's different because she is talking directly to a greater audience and not to the brand itself. So it's not confrontational in that way or not like whatever it is that she's commenting on in terms of brand or person, it's not bringing it onto their turf, you know?
1: And then finally we did a story with John C.J., as part of Unexpected Connections mm-hmm. and an upcoming event and conference we're doing in November on the 7th. So if you're not familiar with John CJ, he is... How do I describe him? He's he's worn so many hats. He's been so influential in advertisement world, having worked at Widen Kennedy, and now he's the president of Fast Retailing, which is the parent company of Uniqlo. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I... Th- I think is undeniable about John C.J. is that he's so elegant in the way he communicates and the way he has his point of view. I think a lot of people of this upcoming generation are maybe unfamiliar with his work. I know that when Alec Alec Rose, our uh, person handling this story, was was going about he's like, man, I didn't know anything about this guy. And it's hard to find information, but he was sort of blown away by the conversation that we had. And I think that the conversation is not unique and that's not to take away from john himself but i what i'm trying to get at is that he always comes with the bangers like it's not the first time we've had the opportunity to speak mm-hmm. with him in the context of a story you always walk away with like shit this guy has so much wisdom and he comes with a certain point of view and i also kind of appreciate his approach to the way he does things like i think there's a sense of i think there's a nice balance between knowing what he's achieved plus humility like and i think that's the balance right like Obviously, you can look at his track record; it's amazing. But also, he's down to be put into the same room with people that are far superior in other parts of the world. I mean, other parts of the world being other topics and whatnot. So it's a long, it's a long interview, but I highly recommend reading it if you get the yeah. chance. Should we get into it? Sure, sounds good. My first topic today is ostrich pillow hood, a standalone hood for casual comfort. I
0: have no idea where you're going with this. We were
1: kind of going back and forth about what to talk about today. And I was like, hmm, what can we talk about? A few of the things that we had selected actually were quite similar to things we had talked about before. And I was like, hey, I I think we should just try something different. So one of the visual endings, one of the things that we kind of cap off our newsletter with is a photo of something. And we went with the ostrich pillow hood. So the ostrich pillow itself, which is sort of like the parent company, was this unique pillow that, that was released a few years ago. And it was designed in a way where you could sleep on your desk. So basically, if you haven't seen it, and I suggest you Google it, you would put your head inside of this, I guess almost like a bulb in a way. and you're-
0: It kind of looks like a hot air balloon but for your head.
1: You'd put your head inside and you could sleep.
0: And like you could put your hands in it. Like that. Like it was designed so that you would be comfortable just planting your face on the desk, essentially.
1: Yes. Yeah. And what was interesting about it was, oh, I like this is such a good idea, but I think it was in many ways short-sighted. And the reason why I thought it was short-sighted is if you're needing to sleep at your desk... It should be an indication of a broader issue at hand, (laughs) but then it kind of gets a little bit complicated, right? And anyways, before I get too deep in that, the ostrich pillow hood is a simplified version. It's less of a pillow. It's more of a, hey, let me cover my face up so I get dark, like so I can get a bit of darkness, right? So I can go to sleep, take a nap, whatever. and. It's kind of dubbed the standalone hood for casual comfort. Okay, to
0: describe this visually a little bit more, it's like the hood of a hoodie, but minus the sweater part.
1: Attachment. Yeah,
0: minus the sweater part of the hoodie, just the hood. Or actually, is it? I think this exists in ski wear, doesn't it? I
1: don't know. I mean, it's kind of like a balaclava. Yeah, it's kind of
0: like a balaclava.
1: What is interesting about it is, I mean, the whole use is to create an opportunity for you to take a nap right? And I think everyone's kind of recognizes the importance of sleep and now we're sort of entering a space where how does performance and aesthetics intersect? Because in many ways, like the hood itself looks kind of, it's just like it, it has a certain aesthetic to it because it's there for you to have a sense of performance, right? It's there for you. Like if you need to take a nap, you can kind of flip it around because that's the use case too, right? Like when you are to put it on. So yeah, basically it's like meant for you to create mental mind space when things are overwhelming. The video
0: is very lofty. While I was trying to consider, like I was trying to read into your mind as to where you wanted to take this, I watched this video and I thought maybe you're going to make a knock at this video.
1: Yeah, like I think that ultimately that what I find interesting is that here we are trying to create solutions for some of like the deeper underlying problems in culture and society and problems challenges whatever you want to call it I thought I was like yo this is kind of interesting because are we about to kind of enter a space where well-being and all elements of well-being will be a sort of aesthetic in itself so it's kind of like athleisure right and I, I was thinking like what levels are we going to start pushing this to be a way for us to communicate that hey you know what we care about ourselves and we're willing to embark on what could be like semi-ridiculous looking things because if you look at it when it flips around it's like yo you're kind of like you could be sitting at your desk and you have your face covered by this hood so my question to you is as we start signaling wealth through well-being are we looking to see aesthetics pushed into a certain direction where like it doesn't matter if it looks wacky or whatnot that in itself is a replica that in itself is a representation of you taking care of yourself. Because I think that has been a big part of identity. Yes,
0: I think that is what's happening here. I think it's performative of well-being as opposed to being genuinely about well-being because like as you kind of alluded to, the fact that you are trying to take a nap at your desk should communicate that you're not taking very good care of yourself. Like without the hood, if you were falling asleep regularly at your desk that would signal to people that you aren't sleeping enough at night like you're not taking care of your sleep schedule and then somehow with the hood it's supposed to communicate that you care about I don't even know where what it is that you're communicating that you care about it's that you care about quality sleep in the middle of the day at your office
1: I don't know but I I just find it interesting because I'm I just wonder down the line how people are going to start seeing this play out is it just a new way of us finding solutions across the board for a lifestyle that is driven by this sort of well-being element i think well-being is such an interesting category to see it kind of evolve and grow and like to see what lengths people will go to because i'm sure there's i was thinking about this what are some interesting and weird looking things people do nowadays and what are the things they've normalized for the sake of well being? And I think the one thing that kind of crossed my mind was how quickly people are to share them wearing like face masks, uh, whether it's like um, stuff like that.
0: Huh. I don't think face masks is that weird. I immediately thought of acupuncture. Yeah, I thought of acupuncture and um, what's it called? Cupping.
1: Oh, cupping. Cupping,
0: right? So those are both like yeah, traditional cupping for people are there. Chinese. I actually. I don't know how to talk about this in English, apparently. Uh, you're going to have to help me out.
1: People use it as a way to rehabilitate slash balance your body. I don't know. Some like
0: Okay. In Chinese, you would say something like it's drawing out the toxins of your body. But I realize how hippie that sounds. Anyway, I was just thinking of yeah, other examples of well-being that might not it might not originally look aesthetically pleasing, but that totally tips into my subject, which we should just like start talking about.
1: No, that that's all. I actually felt as though it was just something different to talk about and just like yeah. force myself to think a little bit differently about something that I didn't really, it's more like, a, I guess for me, I was thinking about this from the way of, of small micro trends in terms of, how well-being has been such an important part of identity and what does the future look like and how crazy will people go and what lengths to showcase that. Not that this is that crazy, but it's part of that sort of performative side of things.
0: Topic this week is drawn from a report published on Subpixel written by Toby Shorin. and it's called The Diminishing Marginal Value of Aesthetics. So bear with me because this takes like a little bit of explaining in terms of just explaining what the article is, and then we can go further into a discussion of what we think. So to start with, consider a spectrum of aesthetics, and aesthetics basically means images and visuals of all kinds. And the spectrum ranges from things that are widely recognized and acceptable and already widely accepted to unrecognizable and uncommon. And on this spectrum, the widely recognized stuff sits on the left and the unrecognizable stuff sits on the right. Okay. And then in the middle is all the things Mm -hmm. that are normal, like the things that you see every day on the street and on the internet. Banal aesthetics are so obvious as to have fallen out of fashion and then experimental is like avant-garde stuff that people don't even necessarily appreciate yet. So what marketing and advertising tries to do, no matter what the product is, no matter what they're selling, is to fall within the normal and experimental point. So if you think about the Nike Just Do It campaign, right? That many people might say that that falls within that sweet spot. Or if you think about any advertising campaign, you can consider, you know, where does this fall on this spectrum? Like, you know, the gap is towards normal to banal. And so the idea is that marketers want to be more on the experimental, controversial side because that appeals to people who have consumption power and who want to maintain their status of being, you know, these leaders in culture in being the at the forefront of things. And you can, can you actually in connection to the Kickstarter thing, that's what Studio Banana wants to do, right? They want to be showing something experimental mm-hmm. in well-being, but that is still appealing to people. And so marketing, what it does, it moves aesthetics from right to left. Like things go down this funnel of experimental to normal. And we all see this happen in everything, yep. in music, in movies, in videos and sound design, whatever it is, it goes from experimental to being like normal to then being obsolete. All of this stuff is just like history essentially, or like the idea of media and marketing and how that works. But the really interesting part of this article, which is admittedly quite long, but very good, is what happens when the internet is introduced into this whole system. Did you read this whole thing? Yep, I did. Yeah, it was fascinating. Like, I just, even the beginning part. And then when we get to the charts where it's like talking about single nodes and then how the internet is everyone is a node. So every single thing is a content creator and a broadcaster and a consumer. So like you and me as individuals, we're all three of those things at the same time. Right. So. What this means is that you know everyone has equal access to everything. Things that used to be innovative are mainstream much more quickly. And aggregators cause relativity between everything. So like when you're on Twitter, um, Twitter doesn't know what comes before and after a certain post, but it creates this, it creates connections just by like being together. Yeah. yeah, a fabric. The way Toby Shoren says it is that he says an aesthetic can never die anymore and aesthetic strategies are less effective. Let's say um, there are people that are really into 70s type and culture. There's always going to be a place for these people online. Instead of it passing in and out of trend, it will just always be there. And the same for any other kind of aesthetics. And what that means is it's very hard to know or create something that is genuinely novel.
1: Is it because the fact that it's novel, it enters a sense of normalcy much quicker?
0: It's two things. One is it enters normalcy much more quickly. And then also whatever is novel probably actually already exists somewhere. Because there are so many points of communication, it's very rare that something is produced that people haven't seen. Like, I haven't seen something similar to that. Whereas previously, Mm -hmm. when you had newspapers and television and movies, when something was new, it was within this context of isolated media and a very limited set of aesthetics. And whereas now, anything that's just released comes within like this very great context of every image out there.
1: It's interesting too, because when you talk about advertisements and everything that picks up on a sense of virality, right? Or anything that becomes popular, it kind of links back to that book I told you I was reading called mm-hmm. Hitmakers from last yeah. week, I think. The sweet spot uh, within that spectrum you mentioned where if the left side is obsolete and the right side is experimental, you recognize that it needs to be not too far away from the normal because you need the familiarity. You need the familiarity of normalcy to allow people to, to kind of understand yeah. it. And the minute that they don't understand it is the minute they drop off. So that's always like a balance. And it's almost as though how to create that novel experimental effect while still letting people know that, hey, this is like familiar.
0: What Schwartz suggests actually is we should be investigating what is on the extreme right end of the spectrum. As in, we should be looking at what is, what can we imagine that is the furthest from acceptance right now? What is the most radical? And let's look at, you know, where do these images come from and who is generating them? And, and it's, it, but it is a self-defeating system because no matter how far to the right you look, eventually everything moves left. So yeah. actually what...
1: Because everything has the fun with right, right? yeah
0: right? And... It's not that I think we should therefore stop being innovative. We should continue to try and be experimental and innovative as possible. But I don't think the goal is to make a big splash. I don't think that's really possible to make one thing that is so impactful at as a sole product. And it is more about accruing value instead of trying to do a singular thing that takes off and gets everyone's attention at the same time. It's about this slow burn.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The one part that I found really fascinating is he shares a few tweets from David Rudnick. Mm -hmm. Right. And David Rudnick is a designer. I'm not that familiar with his work. You might be more familiar with his work. But his first tweet was, his tweets were broken off into three parts, and it was one, build work of a depth that is improbably difficult to co-opt effectively, marry craft and concepts so that one is impossible to lift without the other. Two, without apology, disown, disavow, distance yourself from individuals who adopt shallow or cynical models of cultural production. And obviously three, support, support, support others who take the time and risk to build their own practices and build tools for others. Forget trying to be a hero. Be suspicious of anyone who tries to encourage you to be or wants to be seen as one. It's about all of us, not one mm-hmm. winner. So I think that kind of plays to your slope burn thing. And it's it's true. It's like to create something brand new is so challenging because it's not even that you need to trust yourself to make that shot. It's also that you need support in some capacity for it to have sustainability. And it's not to say every idea deserves to have that same platform. Everything that he's mentioned there is so true because if you don't have support and you don't have this conscious way of thinking, the middle ground that Is the experimental side, meaning if the experimental side continually is closer and closer to normalcy, what is the output? The output generally, and that's the median, right, will continually edge closer to obsolete. Is that the right word to use? that
0: is the right word. I don't
1: know. That's the right word to use. So I think that's why you are always critical of how far experimental can you pull things because you know that it'll create a more interesting median.
0: What? David Rednick says in number one is also really important. You know, build work of a depth that isn't probably difficult to co-opt effectively. Mary Craft and concepts so that one is impossible to lift without the other because necessarily good work will be mainstreamed. Will people will derive from that and they will copy that. And that's going to happen, but it doesn't. And while that is depressing, that shouldn't keep you from seeking to build your work to a depth that you are proud of, that you want to continue in.
1: And I look at our own work with Macon and I think that the multimedia aspect of it that we strive to do wasn't, was perhaps subconsciously chosen. Because now I reflect back on it. I was under the pretense that i believe that the mediums we've chosen hopefully generate the best stories i mean that could be audio video text illustration etc cetera, etc cetera. and as i was thinking about it and i was reading those those series of tweets or those comments i was thinking yeah that's true because no one has really tried to combine all those mediums at a high level like no one's really trying to take high level audio storytelling with high level photography with I mean, we don't do that much video, but a high level of video, Mm -hmm. right? Which means that the making experience, if it has those three components, yes, you can be one of the three, but no one has taken them and done them together as one cohesive experience, which is the making experience, I guess.
0: So Rudnick, Shoran reaches out to Rudnick and then Rudnick provides a longer commentary as well. And I think this is sort of the gold standard that, we would want to strive for, whether in our own practices or as Megan. And he says, my struggle is not to maintain authorship. I think authorship's presence is paradoxical in design, designed to me as a synthesis of the message that must be shaped and the audience that must receive it. If one starts with an analysis of both message and audience, then authorship is unlikely to be compromised because these two things are unique in every brief. This is what we try to do, whether we're always successful, I don't know. But I do think that we have this intention of looking at what is the story that we are trying to tell and who are we telling it to? And what is the execution for the story and the audience that turns into this um, end product? And, And if we do that well, then that end product necessarily has our mark on it because we we thought about those two things, you know, what are we saying and who are we saying it to? And mm-hmm. then what comes mm-hmm. of that will...
1: What I'm curious is that under the pretense of this system he's laid out or the way that everything plays out, where is the value in in being experimental if it's so difficult to sustain?
0: Oh, man, I want to be just...
1: Sustaining something could be financial sustainability, but it's also the fact that... You're progressively creating things for a smaller and smaller audience because if you recognize that familiarity brings audience, but you're pushing against that, like how do you condition people? And maybe it's not, maybe it's not even possible because it'll always generate this level of cognition that is just too much for people to overcome. So I, I think fundamentally, I believe it. Yeah,
0: I mean, sure. I know, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And I, and I, and I, I aside there because I think. You know, Shoran reaches this conclusion that I agree with. And he says at the end, he has these four conclusions. And one of them is financial models for cultural production under contemporary media circumstances are an unsolved problem. The old models are dissolving and there is widespread dissatisfaction with the aggregator solution. In scare quotes, because none of the cultural producers are actually making money. And that's what you're saying is that I, I I don't think that... By constantly striving to be experimental, we we collectively, not we make in, but we collectively have figured out how that is financially sustainable and what is a value of doing that. Right now, is not financial value.
1: It's a value to the culture.
0: It's. I mean, I think it's valuable to you as an individual,
1: as a creator. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm, yeah. No, I. The reason why I'm kind of thinking about this a little bit a little bit longer is that. You to go, you going out and creating something. Like everyone has different takeaways and different reasons why they create certain things, right? As a personal project or whatever it may be. If people, when push comes to shove, would create things in the face of no validation. Like for, would you continue to create things if it was in a vacuum? And I, I would be inclined to say that most people would probably drop off. And you see it. People do drop off when no one acknowledges the work they're creating. And obviously Rudnick is in a different situation because he's mentioned that he has a lot of audience. My
0: bleak view on this is many people create things, but I don't think every creator has the same set of outcomes that they want to see. And they don't have the same motivations. And we can't generalize and say that everyone has these pure ideals of being experimental in a vacuum for themselves. But those people do exist. Some of them. There is an economical slant that Shoren provides as well. And he does say that the new economic markets that are created as a result of everything we've talked about are in hardware, software, ad networks, and aggregators. So... Apple making Mm -hmm. MacBook Pros, uh, Adobe using Creative Cloud, ad networks, obviously, and aggregators like social media platforms. like Those are the winners in terms of financial sustainability. And, And it's not the creators. It's not the actual producers
1: of cultural aesthetics. So what was the most interesting takeaway for you from this piece?
0: So something I didn't mention that he talks about is he basically says that the internet has led to the death of graphic design as we know it because of everything we've talked about where new things erode and become mainstream and because everyone has access to everything uh, and images belong to everyone and everyone's a broadcaster. So basically he says like, this is the death of graphic design as we know it. And if my bread and butter for the past, you know, X years has been calling myself a designer and being in this design industry, What does that mean for the work I do? And does it mean that I should be making new work? I I don't know. I think Mm -hmm. it it causes me to think about what is my goal in the work I create and how best do I reach those goals? And maybe that's not through design or maybe that's not through Mm -hmm. traditional graphic design. It it can be a kind of Mm -hmm. design.
1: I think I, I kind of walked away with something a little bit more bleak.
0: I didn't even and think mine was optimistic because here yours.
1: Yeah, I think for me, it was trying to come to terms with... Because like I said, on a theoretical level, I am in total agreement with everything that's said. But I think when it comes to the the reality of lacking a sustainable financial model, that's the one thing that I think is the most challenging. It's like there's no real value in being experimental per se right if you cannot sustain it and i think that the fact that it's such a binary outcome for the most part where like for example advertisements were generally the way the internet ran until they were gobbled up by like google and facebook right so it wasn't so much that you went from making less money it's almost to the point where it's asphyxiation where you're basically choking out all the publishers or all like the different people. So what are you going to do from there on out? If you're kind of increasingly pulling inspirations down the line, if, if that pool of inspiration continually shrinks or becomes more referential, what does that really mean? I mean, everything is going to be sort of pulled from the same shit over and over again. And it already kind of is, or it feels like it anyways. Um, so I don't know. I think that's the one part that, that kind of has me a little bit down because it's true. It's like it's people that have figured out how to monetize culture and they are the ones that are succeeding, but they're not the ones that are creating it.
0: Looking at history and looking at the current landscape, I don't think it's possible for people on the far right end to people seeking to be on that far right end of experimental work that is creative and unacceptable can expect to be financially viable because the things that are financially viable are things that the the vast majority of people see a necessity in and there i think it's mutually exclusive i don't think that by being experimental and and doing unacceptable you know, unappreciated work can be perceived by a large number of people as necessary.
1: Yeah. So you kind of just have to be the martyr.
0: I think so. I think martyr is an extreme way to put it, but I I think martyr is an extreme word for it. But I think, I think that's how it
1: goes. Well, that seems like a good place to cap things (laughs) off.
0: (laughs) Oh, dear Lord. Oh. I'm not trying to say that artists and designers and people who are experimental creators are heroes. Okay. I'm not trying to say that. I, I think the work is important, but it is, there is always that choice that you as a creator can make and you, you can try to do both. You can try to sustain yourself by pushing yourself to do work that is really experimental to you and also doing the work that is normal and doing the work that is financially sustainable. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that those two things are going to be the same, but I think individual creators and creators such as ourselves as an entity like Megan, we can we can do both. Mm-hmm. Or I think that's what's ne- That I think that is what's needed.
1: Now, is that really the place we cap it off? Yeah,
0: for real capping it off now. If you are interested in learning more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com.
1: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend.
0: If you ever want to get in touch with us, you can DM us on Instagram at macon and you can also email us directly at sharice at macon or eugene at macon.com. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice.
1: And this is Making It Up.